scripture this morning comes from First uh, Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, uh, I encourage you to pull the pew Bible out in front of you and turn to page one thousand two hundred and four. Again, that's First Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. Um, I think it's important, the reason I tell you where it is and what page on the Pew Bibles every week, um, I think it's important for us to, to read the Word of God, to be able to put it in our hands and, and find where to go uh, for several reasons. Uh, recently, I, I've been asked, and I'm going to travel to a church in Texas, they're doing uh, spending a year on biblical literacy, and I'm going to go there and, and speak at a, at a conference. And so in, in preparation to do so, um, I've, I've done a bit of reading up on literacy and biblical literacy, trying to, to fully understand uh, the, the entire subject. And, and really, uh, the neuroscientist, uh, the, uh, the, the literary people, they, they come to, to this place where us having literacy, right, the ability to read words on page, to make sense of these symbols that we call letters, and to read them, interpret them into words, to understand, therefore, stories that, that eventually transform us to a place outside of our mind where we can then be, be, be reading in this place, is something no other species can do that we're aware of, right? So we've moved from this place of, of reading pictures carved on a cave wall to where we can read a, a thousand-page book and, and sit down and understand everything uh, that's written into it. And, and so this explosion of literacy has greatly affected uh, uh, who we are as people and how ideas and messages spread around. And, and we think back to the time of Jesus and the time the scriptures are written in the New Testament. It, it was an oral story given. There wasn't a ton of literacy. Not everybody in your family could read. In fact, chances are someone being able to read in your family was very, very very slim to even have one person able to read in your family. To where now we live in a time where the chances of someone not being able to read in your not being able to read is very, very slim in your family. And, and so there was this explosion of, of literacy. And, and along with this explosion of literacy comes the movement of Jesus Christ across the world because, because it's written down and it's formed here in the scriptures for us to then go across the world. See, it's Jesus who says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and so the, the neuroscientists and the linguistics and, and everybody uh, agrees that, that literacy is an important thing for us as humans, but that around 15 years ago, there was a shift. There was this shift away from paper. There was a shift away from books. There was a shift away from letters, from memoirs, from the written word and reading it with each other into this new digital age. And so we're living in the midst of this transition in this digital age. Things have changed. Chances are if you uh, are, are a reader, you're probably reading less now than you used to read. And, and it's because it's this transformation to this digital age. How we absorb information, how we understand stories has transformed from going to books to read them to watching them on a picture screen. 
It's why The Chosen as a TV series is so popular. And it's far easier for us to sit there and binge a season of The Chosen than to go and open the Bible and read it ourselves. Now, this isn't to say this is just for Christians, but the way we learn is changing as well. I think of my own kids, all of them in uh, kindergarten, first grade, and in seventh grade, and in their schools, learning to read is, is a thing, but it's not just done on paper anymore. There is now the digital component. They have this thing called Lexia that they go and, and they read passages and then answer questions there on the computer. How we uh, watch stories changes, right? When I was a kid, cartoons, we were... I was told that cartoons, the picture needed to change every seven to 10 seconds to be able to keep a kid's attention in front of the television. It is now less than two seconds. The image must change and flash to keep attention. And so, and so if, we, if we're lacking the attention on a picture screen, it makes words on a page that don't move far less interesting, which then we struggle with literacy. And so the reason I, I encourage you to open your Bibles, not just hear me orally tell you what the Scripture says, is because as we're morphing into this digital age, it's important for us to hold on to our literacy. Not only literacy and able to read, but the fact that God has provided His very Word for us to reveal His full character. The chosen, while great on, on many aspects, remember it is still a movie, television adaptation of Scripture. They have to add and remove things for creative purposes. It is, it is uh, meant to be a representation of the Word of God, but it is not the Word of God itself. But you have been given access to that and hold on to it. And remember, Jesus said, we are not to live on bread alone, but on every word from our God. And so I just want to encourage you on that, and that's why... Uh, it's important for me, it's important what I believe when we say there's no book but the Bible, that we really hold on to it and we're willing to open it. Because you remember three years ago, three years ago the world shuts down. Church shuts down. We're not meeting in person. And, and so the reality of something like that happening again is not nothing anymore. There's always the chance it could happen again. And if the only time we're reading Scripture is when someone is reading it for us and to us, the next time we're shut down, what is it that we're going to do in our homes? We, we as, as people of God, don't need to wait for someone to get on a screen to read the Word of God to us. But it's that food that we need. So that in those times, if we can't gather, if we can't get together, we can gather in our homes, we can gather with our neighbors, we can gather with our families, open the word of God and stay faithful and live on what he has said. Amen? Okay. So enough with that sermon. We'll move on to the real one for the day now. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. There it's written, Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would please join me in prayer. O oh, holy God, 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Easter season is fun. Easter itself is so much fun. And, and, and it's fun when we begin to think about it as a church. The, the journey that we are going to go through, not including the raining out of a sunrise service for the first time in 56 years, right? But still, Easter was fun. Even in the midst of the rain and the gloom and the darkness of the day, Easter was fun. See, we begin the week by, by having a Palm Sunday celebration and kids waving palms. We're singing Hosanna in the church. It's colorful. It's bright. We're anticipating Easter the next Sunday. And so everyone is gearing up and getting excited. But at the same time, we, we, it, it's ironic that we celebrate kids waving palms and shouting Hosanna. And Palm Sunday is such a joyous day. Because in that story of Palm Sunday, it's the ones who wave the palm branches that later that week shout, crucify him, crucify him. And the ones who are waving the palm branches, they have this misunderstanding and a wrong expectation of who Jesus is, of, of who the Messiah is to be. They're waving their palms, shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us, because they are hoping Jesus to ride in as the new warrior king of Israel to take over and solve all of their governmental problems there in Israel, to kick out Rome. And then when he's not that, they are completely done with him, crucified. And so we begin going through that week shouting Hosanna, and we, we travel to Thursday, and we remember the Last Supper. Jesus gathering with his disciples, his betrayer there, and he's sharing the meal with them. And then they move on to the garden, and we're there unfolding and watching the events in the garden. We see Jesus becoming increasingly frustrated with his disciples. In the very near hour, he's going to be arrested and then gone off to hang on a cross. And all he does is ask them, please keep watch while I go pray. And every time he comes back, they're asleep. He can't believe it. He's so frustrated with them that they can't even have the attention to stay awake in such an hour. And then the guards come to arrest him. And to top it off, can they not only stay awake while he's off praying, Peter draws a sword and chops off the ear of a soldier. And Jesus is like, good grief. You guys just don't get it. And we're out of time you to get it. Peter even goes on after Jesus is arrested, hangs near the palace, and when they say, hey, you were hanging out with him, he makes sure to deny it three times, just as Jesus said he would. And then on that Friday around noontime, and it grows dark, and Jesus draws his last breath. We remember the harsh sufferings that Jesus endures and the pain on the cross for our sins. And then Saturday, the church is silent, but our houses aren't silent. 
because we know the rest of the story. Saturday of Easter week is a joyous day. Good Friday is somber in the moments we're reflecting, but it's a joyous Good Friday because Easter is coming. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. So Easter, Easter is so much fun. And here we are back in 1 Peter, getting to understand what's next for us. And, and so this Peter, the guy who chopped off the soldier's ear, if you're unfamiliar with him, a follower of Jesus, a denier of Jesus, restored by Jesus after his resurrection, he's writing this letter to exiles of Christians of the faith who are dispersed across the world. They're no longer there in Jerusalem but he calls them exiles not because they're not in Jerusalem, but because they're not in their heavenly home. It makes us all exiles as believers. And so he's writing to them, and, and he begins telling them about three important things that all sociologists agree that we need. That, that things we need in life are to love, to belong, and to be loved. Those three things, and, and we begin to persevere through anything else holding on to those three things. And Peter opens this letter, and he's telling us all about where we and who we belong to. And he even sums up Easter in verse 10, right before where we read today, when he writes, once you were not a people, once you didn't belong, but now you are God's people, now you belong. You hear these words he's saying here? And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter sums up Easter so beautifully in this sentence that he writes, that he's writing to these exiles out in the world. That the fullness of what Christ has accomplished for us as sinners is contained in these words. We are gods now. We have mercy now. Not judgment, mercy. So Peter writes, now that we know where we belong and whose we are, he writes, beloved. Beloved. When we hear and read Peter write these words, it warms the inside of our soul like the first sip of coffee on a cold morning. Beloved, because of Christ, we are beloved. A title for all whose identity and eternity is wrapped up and anchored in Jesus Christ. Beloved. And that's what he wants us to remember, that we belong to God and we are beloved by God. So now the rest of his letter, as we work through these two verses, he's telling us that the rest of this letter in these two verses is going to be about how we then show our love and our response and our living as Christians. That what it means to be set apart, what does it look like to be God's people? What it looks like to belong to him despite being this far away from our heavenly home. So he writes, verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the theme for the rest of his letter. Our conduct, what we are to abstain from, what we are to do. In, in the coming chapters and verses, he will write more specifically. He'll write specifically about what it is for us to be a Christian and how we relate to society and how we interact with government and what it looks like to have employment and what a marriage in God's eyes that glorifies him looks like. What it means to suffer and to suffer for Christ's sake. And what grace in action is. But here he gives us the most basic of requirements for us to live in this fallen world. What it looks like for beloved people of God, worthy of that title, and all the wonders and relationships. So what is it that he tells us is required? What's required of us as beloved children of God? Peter answers quite simply, to abstain and to keep. Abstain and keep. Meaning that as God's people, we will be known as this kind of people and not those kind of people. Right? We all know those kind of people. We do. Some of us are sitting in this room. But God calls us to be this kind of people. To be set apart. To be different from the world. So he starts, he says, abstain from the passions of your flesh. Now if you've been in church for a while, you've heard flesh said and mentioned in scripture, and maybe you have an idea of what it is, but but flesh and sinful desires are kind of interchangeable throughout Scripture. When you hear the words, uh, passions of your flesh, you can think sinful desires, or passions of the belly, or, or worldly living, or prideful being. Where it's all about self, or self-gratification. But Peter gave us a list earlier in this letter, Right at the beginning of chapter 2, in the first verse, he says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are the vices that every person in Christ is to put away, to abstain from. See, it's those kind of people that have malice and envy, that slander and have hypocrisy. His people, the people of God, are not to be known for that. Now, we still struggle with it. We still struggle with it because we have been reborn and re-given new life in Christ, but we're not fully mature yet, and so we battle our flesh that is waging a war on our soul. So we battle malice in our heart, but we battle it with the Spirit of God that lives within us and dwells within us, according to Paul in Romans 8, that has the power to put sin to death. 
We battle with envy of looking at neighbors and friends and saying, they have what I want. They look happy. I want to be happy like them. And I see that they have money and power and a great job, so I must have money, power, and a great job in order to be happy. Folks, the devil uses everything to trick us, and comparison is the biggest one. We can look all across social media, and while it can be great for information and connecting with people, the amount of envy and malice and slander it causes is a tool for the devil to dive into your fleshly desires. See, we're not to be known for this. These attitudes and these actions are how we once walked, but now we battle with them. They tell of a person who is apart from Christ, not a person who's in Christ. And it's Peter who writes later in this letter in chapter 4. He says, live for the rest of your time in the flesh no longer for human passion but for the will of God. See, it's 2023, and I I think we're at a place here that we can all agree that in this time and in this day, that 2023, we have not only loosened itself from biblical anchors, but the world has come to reject truth. Objective truth is now up for debate. Facts are up for debate. Truth is up for debate. And the sad truth is that we live in a day that there is more earthbound and passion driven people than there was in an unbelieving ancient world. Let me unpack that for a minute. More earthbound and passion driven than in an ancient world, an unbelieving ancient world. Uh, We can think back uh, not too far. We can go to the Greeks and the Romans. Greek mythology, Roman mythology. We can go and we can read Paul's letter. He writes to the Corinthians. They, They talk about this hill that they climbed to go sacrifice things to to different gods, idols that they would make all across. Also what? So that they could have some afterlife? No, it was for earthly power, earthly blessings. To be done in the here and in the now. But we live in a time where Christianity is far more prevalent than it was in an unbelieving ancient world. And yet still, As people, as a whole, across the world, we are more earthbound and passion-driven than they were back then. Because we've sold Jesus and living for him as mere fire insurance. And to continue to have that insurance policy renewed every year, there's check boxes we must check off coming to church, going to Sunday school. And that is not true. Our life isn't for ourselves. It's to be for Christ. We don't abstain from all of those passions of the flesh that 
that Peter writes about for ourselves. We do it for God, for him to be glorified, for him to be given honor, for him to be praised, for others to see us, he writes, and they would count our good deeds not for us, but he would count them for the glory of God. And it's more and more reason we need to hear from Peter how we are called to be set apart. That's why we abstain. Not only abstain, he writes, but to keep our conduct honorable. Honorable conduct, though, does not grant you access to heaven. Good deeds do not get you through the pearly gates. We're going to go back to this checklist thing that we talked about for fire insurance. If you're in this mode where you've got to earn your way to heaven or you're doing things to keep your salvation as whole, also that when you arrive to the pearly gates and you meet Peter, by the way, who wrote this letter, and you say, hey, check out my checklist. I got it done. He's going to go great. Uh, did you live for Jesus? Because the list makes it look like we lived for ourselves. So we could get into the cool club at the end of life. Good deeds and honorable conduct in our new life is to not be done for our own glory. Not to be done so at the end of this life, when people gather around and celebrate our life or memorialize our life, they can say, you know what, Nathan was a good man. But rather, we have honorable conduct and we do good deeds so that in this life and at the end of this life, when people gather, they say, praise God for his goodness. Praise God for his mercy, for his grace, for his patience and his kindness. Glory goes to Jesus. See, Paul, the apostle, he agrees when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for God works, for, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's our prayer that, that our good deeds may, may be rooted in our knowledge of his grace and his love. Not in order to earn it, but because we belong to him, because we are beloved by him, we go and live for him. And that is how God calls us to love him. That we may be faithful until Christ's return. It's when we read Peter's letter, and we get to this point before he starts giving us specifics. We can hear echoes of Jesus in his words. Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus over the course of three years. Now, while he spoke and he acted a lot before he thought about it, apparently he did pay quite good attention to what Jesus was teaching. Because here, contained in 
Peter's words are the echo of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount. When he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. See, it's a song that, that we learned as kids or we taught our grandkids or we learned as kids growing up in the church. And it's not just because it comes with a catchy tune and some hand signals and the kids look super cute when they come up and sing it for you. Because it's grounded in the truth of Scripture. To let your light shine. Don't blow it out. Don't hide it. Don't let the devil trick you to turn it off. And that when we gather together as God's people, abstaining from the flesh and living honorable conduct, letting our light shine, not just as one, but as a community of his people gathered together. The light shines so bright, so bright. It's like it's the glory of God shining down. So Peter urges us, as sojourners and exiles, to live a life worthy of the title beloved. Amen.